loves, this is Kate, the founder of Loam, and I hope you all are finding moments of cherished connection and creative communion this new year. The last few weeks have felt especially tender. Our beautiful community in Australia is facing devastating wildfires. Like many of you, I'm really feeling the grief. Returning to Loam Listen, however, has been healing. The community we're attending to, both online and in person, reminds me that we truly live at the intersection of many worlds. In the face of destruction and despair, our constellation of creatives is continuing to cultivate compassion, seed ecological regeneration, and nourish the resistance. You all are my guiding light, and I am grateful every day that I get to listen to and learn from each one of you. Inspired by a response to our call for community input, We'll be releasing upcoming episodes of Loam Listen every other Tuesday at 12 Mountain Standard Time. My hope is that this will help you transform tuning into an episode into an opportunity to integrate ritual into your everyday. And of course, continue to reach out to me via email to let me know how Loam Listen can be of service to you all. I am totally not a techie, uh, so I really appreciate learning from you about what platforms you like to listen on and what topics you're hungry to explore. For those of you who are new to the crew, Loam Listen is an expression of a belief at Loam that creative community can be a catalyst for resilience and reimagination in the heart of climate chaos. As the systems surrounding us collapse, it feels especially vital to nurture new ways of being through creating spaces for radical artists, activists, educators, and entrepreneurs in our community to share their stories on their terms. It's in that spirit that I am excited to connect today with the game-changing Aditi Mayer. Aditi is a photojournalist, filmmaker, and sustainable fashion blogger whose work explores the intersections of style, sustainability, and social politics. After the devastating Bangladesh Rana Plaza factory fire in 2014, Aditi was inspired to launch her blog, Adi May. Adi May explores the fashion industry through the lens of decolonization and intersectional feminism. She's also part of the inaugural cohort for the Gwen Ifill Fellowship from the International Women's Media Foundation, as well as a member of the Authority Collective, an organization of women X, femmes, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people of color committed to reclaiming their authority in visual media. From fashion editorials to documentary journalistic work, Aditi is passionate about using media to create content that centers narratives that have been systemically silenced, as well as bringing equity to communities of color. Aditi, thank you for making the time to talk today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. So, as a sustainable fashion activist for Cultivating a Conscious Closet, your work is rooted in a real commitment to intersectionality. What first inspired you to reimagine narratives surrounding sustainable style? Yeah. So as you mentioned, my gateway into the whole sustainable fashion world happened after the Rana Plaza factory collapse that you mentioned. So when I made my segue into this world, I remember going to a lot of events in the sustainable fashion scene. And it was quite disheartening to see that I was often the only woman of color. A lot of the folks in the space were homogeneously white, upper class. And a lot of the rhetoric and narrative around sustainable fashion was really rooted in charity models meant to uplift this archetype um, of a starving black or brown woman in the global south. 
which was inherently problematic to me because it wasn't about true sustainability and empowerment, but rather systems that relied on more consumption for the West for the perceived liberation of the East. So in doing so, I felt like this quote-unquote sustainability became a purely capitalistic endeavor, and it was one that was limited to like a high-end luxury market made for only those who could afford it. And so for me, when I think about true sustainability, it's about more than just consumption, right? It's about reusing, repurposing the items we already have. Um, So for me, it became a larger question on who gets to represent the movement of sustainability. Is it folks that can afford the latest ethical organic cotton sweater of the season? Or is it indigenous, you know, communities of color, like folks like my parents and grandparents that have always been inherently sustainable and seen through the lens of fashion, communities that have been wearing the same items for the last decade, carefully mending and repurposing them. So it really became a question of me on who gets to lead this movement and why. And that's a question that lends itself to looking at sustainability through a lens of power dynamics, race, gender, class. And for me, Communities of color have always been inherently sustainable and I think have developed a relationship to the earth. Um, But also this question around inherent sustainability is tied to class. When you can't live a lifestyle where you see things as disposable, which I think is an idea glorified by colonial ideals, um, you have to think about the life cycle of the things you own. Things don't disappear. Um, So with that said, although my platform is one that is super passionate about style, culture, and aesthetics, all of the things inherent to fashion, it's also about a larger conversation of the social politics and social justice in this industry. Um, Because for me, the fashion industry is a vehicle to kind of observe larger systems of oppression and the impact we have on communities globally as well as the planet. Wow, I really am moved by what you shared about representation and uh want to note that in hearing you share some of your story, it was a beautiful affirmation of why I think your work resonates with so many of our listeners. You know, I was inspired to reach out to you because of a listener who follows your work and loves that what you do is not just about aesthetic. It digs so much deeper into the issues at the heart of our current ecological and social crises. And and bringing it back to representation, I'd love to learn more about how your South Asian identity in particular uh, shapes your relationship to fast fashion. Yeah, a few different ways, actually. I think for one, coming from a country and culture that is still reeling from the impacts of colonization, um, a colonial hangover, you could say, positions me to see the ways that colonial values became capitalistic values. You know, ideologies that are rooted in exploitation and extraction, whether we're talking about the extraction of natural resources or of labor. And so with that said, so much of the fashion supply chain exists in South Asia. South Asia historically has had an amazing textile and fashion industry, one that was defined by artisan craft, regional identity, natural fibers and dyes, supporting local tailors, etc. But the presence of the British Raj was a huge hit to this. And in fact, I would say that some of the first models of fast fashion that we ever saw in our world in terms of institutions that are rooted in like mass production and exploiting labor happened during colonization in South Asia. 
So what I always like to allude to is during the fight for independence against the British Raj, a major form of resistance was spinning our own cloth or khadi, which is like this rough textured fabric made from cotton and is usually hand spooled. So khadi became a literal tool and symbol of resistance, one that was about not supporting its economic level, but also serving as a symbol for like indigenous production and environmental regeneration. Um, so there's that. But I think today in our like modern world and this global deregulated neoliberal economy, South Asia is still home to the fashion industry's race to the bottom, which is this idea that you have to produce as much as you can, as fast as you can, as cheap as you can. And so a lot of that is still happening in South Asia and the global South at large. And so I think it's really important to note that the supply chains of major brands today are actually mirroring colonial trade routes during the height of the British Empire 150 years ago. That is <laughs> so unsettling. <laughs> and recently, a lot of your work has centered around decolonizing the fashion industry, recognizing, as you shared, how these colonial routes are mirrored in our present day interactions. Um, but in an era when there are so many brands that are co-opting the revolution uh, through their messaging and their media, how do you define decolonization? Yeah, I, that's a really good point. I mean, in 2020, I think diversity is hot. Our identities as people of color are often seen as profitable, right? It's a way for big companies to kind of virtue signal their liberal values. But when it comes to our communities, it's clear that companies want the aesthetic of diversity, but not us. I often think about an example like Nike's release of like a sportswear hijab, right? Um, meant for the representation of Muslim women, but it's still Muslim women in the global South that are making their products without decent pay and are still subject to sexual abuse in factories. And this is a brand or company that definitely has the bottom line and profits to bring true equity to their whole supply chain, but doesn't. So with that said, true decolonization in fashion for me is kind of going beyond the aesthetic representations of inclusion and liberation, but really thinking about it through a transnational intersectional lens. Like we are not an idea. We are not a symbol. We are not a prop. And so if you want to show that your brand is liberal but are only doing that as a marketing tool, that's not progressivism. That's opportunism. And diversity can't be a cosmetic tool. Um, so with that said, for me, decolonization is really about reframing a culture at large that has normalized extraction and exploitation as the means of growth and success. It's an ongoing process to understand and really mend the effects of colonization as it relates to everything like cultural assimilation, um, the way that we have seen our growth on a capital level against our own communities and our own planet. So given that context, what does decolonizing fashion look like in practice, both on a personal scale, uh, on a corporate scale? and on a community and cultural scale? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a very important question. Um, when it comes to fashion sustainability and how we're kind of going about this in our day-to-day -day lives as consumers, the first point I want to drive home is that you can't necessarily buy sustainability, right? The most sustainable thing that you and I have is what's already in our closet. 
And when it comes to conversations around decolonization, I don't think decolonization can be reduced to a consumer act because it's so much bigger than that. But on that note, in terms of working towards a more equitable fashion industry and what you can do as a consumer is really understanding the source. It's consciously choosing to support artisans as opposed to multinational corporations that don't have our best interests in mind. It's about focusing on revitalizing craft and processes that honor rather than destroy our earth. It's about making sure the folks in the supply chain are compensated fairly. And I think that's why this whole sustainable fashion world lends itself to this conversation because it's about transparency, ethics, regeneration. But with that said, that can't be the end-all be-all because we can't buy our way into liberation. So while conscious consumerism is important, the larger conversation we need to be having is about these governing ideologies that have framed not only the fashion industry, but the world at large. So things like having disposability as a mindset, thinking about extraction and extraction as a mean for infinite growth, trying to control nature. Those are all of the conversations that need to be front and center. I really love what you share that you can't buy the liberation (laughs) because I think we're so often told that we can and it really requires a lot of uh, discipline and devotion to challenge that construct and understand the liberation is embodied and shared and and can't be commodified. And I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about your work uh, with garment workers in Los Angeles, which I think is a really beautiful example of, of decolonizing fashion and practice. So could you share a little bit more about what you are doing and how that work began and where you are now? Totally, yeah. So I am born and raised um, here in LA. And when I first started as like a blogger in this whole sustainable fashion world, a lot of my work was really focused on the consumer. But when it comes to kind of infiltrating or I should say attacking the fast fashion industry, I think there are three major pillars. It's consumer education, it's corporate accountability, but most importantly, it's building workers' rights. And so a little bit of background about LA's fashion industry. The second biggest industry in Los Angeles is the cut and sew garment industry. So that refers to the factories that are making the clothes. And it's an industry that is very much an informal economy. It's very much underground. And a lot of it is because most of the workers in LA's garment industry are undocumented. And so this means that we really need to understand how identity is weaponized. Because folks have that vulnerable status being undocumented, employers will routinely kind of exploit this by threatening them with deportation and calling ICE if they try and speak out. And another big thing we see in Los Angeles is that although everyone is entitled to the minimum hourly wage, even if you're undocumented, There is a piece rate in Los Angeles, which means that workers are paid per piece they make rather than by the hour. And that piece rate hasn't changed in 20 plus years. And it's usually about five cents per piece, which means that workers are making anywhere from like $5 an hour. Um, And again, when they do speak out, they are threatened. And so What my work in this landscape has looked like has been working in collaboration with the Garment Workers Center, which is a worker-led organization that educates workers on their rights, but also thinks of policy changes that can really 
bring true um, reform to this industry. So my involvement thus far has been assisting with grassroots efforts because I think it's really important to note that we can't expect these corporations to facilitate change. It has to start with workers and consumers coming to support workers in this movement. Um, I've really assisted in that sense and then um, as a visual storyteller um, doing you know worker profiles doing things in a journalistic capacity and so some upcoming things that we are working on is working towards policy that would eliminate the piece rate completely and then also making it so that um Brands who are producing in these factories are legally accountable to pay their workers when there are instances of wage theft. So there's a lot more clarity in terms of brand being a part of the supply chain and not kind of avoiding accountability and just blaming the factories. Um, and it's amazing to see just how much resistance there is because I think so much of the narrative around garment workers globally is feeding into this idea of this poor garment worker who's victim. To, to all of these systems, but garment workers are resisting globally. And it's a fight that demands that garment worker voices is at the center of this movement. It's not about consumers. It's not about brands. It's about workers. And I think that's a really apt example of what decolonization looks like and where we choose to focus our resources and who we allow to have power. I think that is so important because right now, so much of the emphasis is on the consumer and how as a consumer we can cultivate a conscious closet and what we can do to curate an aesthetic identity that's sustainable. And it's to and although that's an important part of the equation, it's totally neglected. The people who make our clothes and who put their time and energy and resources and lives into this industry at the expense of incredible abuse. And so I'm curious to know what can consumers do to support the people who make our clothes, um, as well as the places that gift the materials for our clothes? How can we look beyond our own closets to really take care of uh, those in our community who are creating what we are wearing, as well as the ecosystems that are supplying the raw material for what we're wearing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so beyond just, you know, supporting sustainable brands that do have supply chains that lend itself to more equitable pay and thinking about the planet, I always say that think about your contribution to the fashion world beyond just what's in your closet. Think about where you could put your time and resources into this industry. And the fashion industry is one that spans everything from the raw material level, whether we're talking about cotton and things like that, to the workers. So if you could give your time or money, if that is something that you're able to give to workers, worker organizations like the Garment Workers Center, that's a huge step, giving your time and putting, you know, your body and when it comes to actions that garment workers are having around the world. But beyond all that, there's also our consumer mindset, kind of opting out of this culture that tells you you need the latest trend to be in and kind of equating our self-worth into this like capitalistic narrative of always consuming more and more and more and having those sorts of conversations with your own community. So although our Closets are a great way to start, as you mentioned, to think about our aesthetic identity and consuming less. It's really about where we're putting our time and resources in larger conversations and community-led initiatives. One thing that I really would love to learn more from you about, and this is kind of a reflection of 
some of the conversations that we've had in the Loam community is we have many readers who, like you, kind of exist at the intersections of many worlds, right? They're passionate about social justice. They're passionate about climate regeneration. And they're passionate about style, too. And aesthetic and beauty is a part of their activist toolkit. But because um, beauty and aesthetic and style have traditionally been signifiers of feminine identity and we live in a patriarchal society um, that dismisses femme values and ideas, how, how do you reclaim the power in your work in the face of this culture? Because I, I really do think that for a lot of our listeners, this is something that they struggle with, how to be, to be seen in the duality, in the, in the multiplicity of their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's very important to note that whether we're talking about fashion and beauty, all of these industries are inherently political. And to see it in any other way, I think, is an injustice um, because you can't remove conversations around social politics, environmental regeneration from these sorts of spaces. When it comes to kind of reclaiming your power, I would say it's important to note that in this day and age, these movements around sustainability have to be accessible. And I think that aesthetics is a great touch point for people to enter these conversations. So at face value, I think fashion is inherently sexy and people want to talk about this. But if we can use these spaces to segue into larger conversations of the true issues that plague all of our communities, it is so important to kind of use fashion as a vehicle to interrogate systems of oppression. And so that's what I have done is you don't have to compartmentalize your interests, whether it be beauty, aesthetics, fashion from these larger conversations. And if anything, everyone should be working towards kind of using these two conversations to lend itself to one another um, because they are so entrenched in the same conversation. Thank you so much, Aditi, for sharing with us today and for all the beautiful work that you do. I know you've been an incredible source of inspiration, not only to me, but to many in the Loam community. So I'm really grateful to you for for sharing some of what it is you do. Thank you so much. And I also want to thank Isaac Silk for editing, Isaac and Faith Harding for intro music, and you all for listening. It is such a gift to be in conversation with you.